Good evening. Texas senators eliminate a curriculum on the KKK. A report from Nicaragua and the family of a victim of police violence in New York has his day in court, has their day in court. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, July 20th, 2021. Trump inaugural committee chairman Tom Barrack, 74, was charged in federal court in Brooklyn, New York, with acting as an unregistered foreign agent lobbying the United States on behalf of the government of the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, without telling the federal government what he's been doing. He was arrested in Santa Monica this morning, along with a man from Aspen, Colorado named Matthew Grimes, who's 27 years old. And there's a UAE official also charged who remains at large. Barrick is expected to be extradited to New York later today. Barrick was charged in a seven-count indictment that also included obstruction of justice. A spokesperson says he plans to plead not guilty. And in the latest assault on free speech in the classroom, the Republican-dominated Texas State Senate passed a bill Friday eliminating a requirement that public schools teach the Ku Klux Klan and its white supremacist campaign of terror are morally wrong. Here's some of the debate in Austin. Our classrooms should be places for fostering a diverse and fact-based discussion of various perspectives. They're not for, uh, for planting seeds for a, for a divisive political agenda. This legislation, while well-intentioned, unduly would restrict important but challenging conversations that otherwise should occur in classrooms. My opinion is based partly on the testimony of teachers who testified about the unnecessary pressure, intimidation, and uncertainty it would create for them. Trust our teachers, one testified. The bill also cuts references to Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, the work of United Farm Workers leader Cesar Chavez, Susan B. Anthony's writings about the women's suffragist movement, and Native American history. The bill passed 18 to 4 dropping most mentions of women and people of color from the state's required curriculum. The legislation must next be considered in the House, which is also led by Republicans. The Texas House currently lacks the quorum required for any vote. House Democrats are in Washington to lobby for a national voting rights bill, depriving the body in Austin of a quorum. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, angrily confronted Kentucky GOP Senator Rand Paul today in testimony on Capitol Hill, rejecting Paul's insinuation that the United States helped research at a Chinese lab that could have sparked the COVID-19 outbreak. Paul suggested that Fauci had lied before Congress when in May he denied that the National Institutes of Health funded so-called gain of research or pardon me, gain of function research at China's Wuhan virology lab. Knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain of function. Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly, and I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. It's a dance, and you're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibility for four million people dying around the world okay. from a pandemic. I totally resent the lie that you are now propagating, Senator, because if you look at the viruses that were used in the experiments that were given in the annual reports that were published in the literature 
It is molecularly impossible. No one's saying those it, viruses it is, caused it. It no is, one is molecularly. Those viruses caused the pandemic. What we're alleging is that gain of function research was going on in that lab and NIH funded it. That you is can't not. Get away from it. It meets your definition and you are obfuscating the truth. And you are implying that what we did was responsible for the deaths of individual. I totally resent that. Have and if anybody and is lying here, Senator, it is you. It was the latest in a series of clashes between Paul and Fauci over the origins of the virus that caused the global pandemic. And in international news, a teacher in one of the poorest communities in the Andes who had never held office is now Peru's president-elect after officials in the South American country declared him the winner of a runoff election held last month. Pedro Castillo catapulted from unknown to president-elect with the support of the country's poor and rural citizens, many of whom identify with the struggles the teacher has faced. Castillo was officially declared winner Monday after the country's electoral count became the longest in 40 years as his opponent fought the results. Castillo received 44,000 more votes than the right-wing politician Keiko Fujimori in the June 6 runoff. This is the third presidential defeat for the daughter of imprisoned former president Alberto Fujimori. Wielding a pencil the size of a cane, a symbol of his Peru Libre Party, Castillo popularized the phrase, no more poor in a rich country. Peru is the world's largest copper exporter and is rich in many natural resources. Yet its people have been crushed under the COVID epidemic and has the highest per capita of COVID infections in the Western Hemisphere. Castillo is the first peasant to become president of Peru, where until now, indigenous people almost always have received the worst treatment. He won the congratulation of Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro, Argentina's President Alberto Fernandez, Mexico's President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, and Bolivian President Luis Arce. The U.S. Embassy in Lima praised Peru for, quote, the successful presidential elections and says it looks forward to strengthening of deepening bilateral ties with no mention of Castillo. The president-elect worked as an elementary school teacher for the last 25 years in his native village in the northern region, campaigning in rubber sandals and a wide-brimmed hat like the peasants in his community, where 40% of the children are chronically malnourished. In 2017, Castillo made national headlines, leading the largest teacher strike in 30 years in search of better pay. He lost that battle, but turned his attention to government. And the Nicaraguan government organized rallies and festivities yesterday to mark the anniversary of the July 19, 1979 revolution that overthrew dictator Anastasio Somoza. The celebrations come as President Daniel Ortega, 75, is seeking a fourth consecutive term in November 7th elections. But Ortega's government is not without criticism. Six main potential rivals have been detained, charged with crimes against the state. Ortega alleges the country's April 2018 street protests were part of of an organized coup attempt with foreign backing. After the revolution ousted Somoza, Ortega initially ruled until 1990 when he lost an election after years of U.S.-backed attacks on his government. He returned to the presidency in 2007 after three failed election attempts and won re-election in 2011. He then sidestepped turn limits to get himself re-elected in 2016. Some might say a sign of his popularity. A fellow at the Progressive Institute for Policy Studies, Netfa Freeman, is in the city of Esteli in Nicaragua, where he met with the director of the Regional Ministry of Health. Freeman says the revolution is still as young as the campesinos who defeated the hated dictator Somoza 42 years ago. 
the revolution is still young. What they're trying to do, the Sandinista government and the people, because it's really a people and workers-led revolution, is trying to recover and bounce back from the 16 years of neoliberal government. There was the interruption, you know, from the Zamaro government from 1990 to 2006. And so that's a pretty heavy bounce back. And then not to mention that, increased sanctions from the United States. The United States and the West in general um, in this moment of really discredited capitalism and neoliberalism is really trying to assert itself all around the world. And Nicaragua, along with many of these countries that are trying to plot a socialist path, is in the crosshairs, becoming the crosshairs because of it. So renewed sanctions against Nicaragua, just like they've been doing against Venezuela and against Cuba and so much of the world, actually, even no matter whether you're socialist or not. What have you been talking about while you were there? We were talking to the vice director of the regional ministry of health in Esteli. Dr. Bismarck Rodriguez was explaining to us the country's plan to try to shore up its universal health care and just make sure that it's more than just a declaration and a constitution, but that they have policies in place that safeguard people's right, human right to health care. About the other side, the Chamorro government and the supporters, the business supporters there who are opposed to the Sandinistas, they've been making allegations. The U.S. has been echoing them of, and you see a lot of the news here, that there's human rights violations and uh, arrests and, and surveillance. These are the kind of allegations that are always leveled against countries trying to chart their own path. Just in 2018, the opposition went out on a killing spree and terrorism and all those kind of things, erecting roadblocks, those type of things, in order to destabilize the country, trying to win back what they couldn't get through the election. Sandinista government, the Ortega government, is very popular. There have been polls that show that they're about to win again and a landslide victory. From 1990 to 2006, the Shamaro government was backed by the United States and capitalism was in power. In 2006, the people saw the results of neoliberalism and voted back the SNLN into power and the president, Daniel Ortega, the right wing always has as part of its arsenal so to speak is the u.s propaganda machine the news media always completely blots out of the the news these various gains they blot out the voices of the most oppressive and their projects designed to ensure people's basic human rights are are needed and then they blot out the polls that show who's popular you see a barrage of other organizations some of them so supposedly left left-leaning liberal left whatever that tried to do everything they can to cast doubt is that the soros the colored umbrella revolution yeah yeah that kind of stuff and it's not just the Soros. it's like organizations like walla washington office on latin america Human Rights Watch and these organizations will write things that make it seem like there's a reason to doubt the polls. Nicaragua has one of the smallest police forces per capita in the Western Hemisphere, but it's considered authoritarian by the Western media and there is subversive measures used in cahoots with uh, the foreign forces. Countries have to figure out ways to defend themselves. Those are the measures that are being considered authoritarianism. How's COVID hitting people? They have a a very low COVID infection rate. They did mention a lot of collaboration with Cuba and other countries. And that is Netfa Freeman reporting to WBAI from Esteli, 
in Nicaragua. He's a fellow at the Progressive Institute for Policy Studies. Nicaragua's COVID rates remain low, a total of 8,767 cases and 193 deaths, and about 416,000 doses of the vaccine have been distributed. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. A Manhattan judge said Monday she'll rule this week on whether high-level city officials, including Mayor Bill de Blasio, will have to testify at a judicial inquiry over the handling of the probe of Eric Garner's death seven years ago this weekend. Garner's family and activists petitioned a court to hold a judicial inquiry, which is set for October, into whether city officials neglected and violated their duty to fully investigate Garner's arrest on Staten Island. Garner's mother, Gwen Carr, was joined by activists and attorneys at a news conference after the hearing yesterday. We did get one officer fired, one officer, Daniel Pantaleo, but there were so many other officers involved in my son's death that day, and those officers need to stand accountable. I am so blessed to have so many people who stand behind me. As we've seen with my son's death, the whole world witnessed him being murdered on video. There's no real accountability that has taken place. Hopefully now that we will have our day in court. The next speaker, Monifa Bandele with the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, who is one of the petitioners. We will be here with you for as long as it takes, Mrs. Carr. We will fight for justice and for the family. On this position, around making sure there's accountability of the officers, the many police officers that contributed to his death and beyond. Shameful to us that Mayor de Blasio tweeted about Eric Garner this weekend while his law department continues to block transparency. Eric Garner's family and the public still don't know who was involved in blocking thorough investigations and the discipline of the officers besides Pantaleo. Officers like Justin D'Amico falsified records after he knew Eric was dead and lied, just straight up lied on his official police report saying no force was used. Why is he still on the force? Officers who participated in misconduct are still on the force. That's why as part of this judicial inquiry, we need to hear from the very top of the chain, including Mayor de Blasio, former NYPD Commissioner O'Neill, and other officials. We also need the mayor to stop hiding critical information that we requested months ago about the discipline records and other key information and provide full disclosure to our FOIL requests. We're going to hear from Alvin Bragg with New York Law School, the Racial Justice Project. Today, we took another step forward to transparency. This morning comes on the heels of the appellate division, the first department ruling late last week, affirming the trial court's decision that we could go forward. There would be an inquiry. Unanimously, we have been seeking document discovery from the city uh, so that we not just have an inquiry and call witnesses, but that we can ask the most meaningful questions. Court indicated that an understanding that senior officers were involved in decision-making. We, of course, have been seeking the testimony of the mayor and the police commissioner. The court said it would rule on that as well. So uh, that's that's where we stand in terms of what happened this morning. I think it's one more step towards uh, transparency, which Ms. Carr, the petitioners, and the public have been fighting for. Our city owes it to us. It's been an honor to be involved in this matter.
And attorney Alvin Bragg, who recently won the Democratic primary for Manhattan District Attorney and is the favorite to win the November general election, says he hopes to wrap up this package before he takes office in a question asked by WBAI. The city charter provision under which this proceeding was brought applies to testimony quite broadly. So some of the other people who we're seeking to call are former city officials, whether or not Mayor de Blasio's in office or not. It's our certainly our position. I think the, the city charter provision is quite clear that him being out of office doesn't remove him by virtue of that from being a witness. And as you point out, even on the schedule of October 25th, if we go past the general election date, he will still be in office. So the current schedule still has him being in office. And as for my personal involvement, I do this case under the umbrella of the New York Law School Racial Justice Project, not as a candidate, and will be involved in this up to and through the end of the year. Should I win the general election for Manhattan District Attorney, and I would assume office January 1st. But again, the schedule here is for October 25th. Well before that date, and I'll just add on a personal note, representing these petitioners in this matter, you know, been one of the most meaningful professional endeavors for me. And we'll be working on this through the end of the year with as much uh, vigor and passion as we've done previously. This is a significant, urgent matter, and we hope that, that we go forward on October 25th. We hope that uh, we'll have uh, what the court said may be a three-week proceeding on October 25th so that we will not cross that bridge. Uh, we hope to have a full transparency in late October through early November and have witnesses on the stand. It's been seven years. We shouldn't have to wait any longer. And Gwen Carr spoke about the trial of Derek Chauvin and the role that the killing of her son had on informing the public of police violence. It was because of Eric Garner that set the stage for the George Floyd trial and Chauvin trial because the people were so aware of what happened to my son. Remember, my son's case was worldwide. Everyone knew who Eric Garner was or who Eric Garner is. When George Floyd was murdered, the stage was already set. The world had already seen how cruel that people can be to us, how cruel America is. It was just another uprising. But with that uprising, they did take action where they didn't with my son. And this is why I have to continue to keep the doors open. And that's Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, killed by an NYPD officer seven years ago last weekend. And fair hikes for MTA subways and buses are off the table this year as New York pulls out from the coronavirus pandemic. The MTA put off a vote earlier this year on raising fares while hiking prices on the agency's bridges and tunnels by 7 percent. Still, the MTA says it's possible that the board will approve a fair hike next year. The MTA has raised fares and tolls once every two years since 2009. Today, environmental activist groups rallied in front of New York Senator Chuck Schumer's office. They want to support they want his support for a national bottle bill that would change. Uh, pardon me, change bottle returns at grocery stores to 10 cents nationwide. Clark Adamitis has the story. The United States is one of the world's largest exporters of plastic. 91% of plastic is never recycled, so it's either burned, buried, or dumped in the ocean. The crisis has been going on for years. That's why activists and politicians are attacking the problem with a new bill that targets plastic bottle recycling. It's called the National Bottle Bill. 480 billion plastic bottles were sold in 2018, and that's approximately 1 million a minute. 
That is, would you believe, 50% more than what was produced in 2009. Brian Langloss is a field representative for New York at Oceana, the world's largest nonprofit organization devoted to the health of the world's oceans. He says recycling doesn't actually work for plastic. There is this myth that if you throw your recycling in the recycling bin, that it gets recycled. Instead of recycling, we should be calling it downcycling. Unfortunately, if you have a, let's say, a plastic bottle and you want to recycle it, it can't actually be recycled. The plastic won't actually be reconstituted into another plastic bottle of the same quality. It breaks down. Today's plastic bottle might only be good for tomorrow's plastic bag. Barbara Woods is a volunteer organizer for Beyond Plastics. She believes that plastic pollution and plastic waste is the defining issue of our century. According to Woods, the National Bottle Bill would be a game changer. It would give consumers 10 cents for each plastic bottle nationwide, and bottle return facilities would accept all kinds of plastic bottles under three liters. Only 11 states have bottle return programs. Nine of those states pay five cents for a bottle return, and only two states pay 10 cents. When New York State passed a bottle bill, 70 to 80 percent of the beverage containers were recycled and reduced waste. So anything that has money attached um, will make sure that it, it does get recycled. Anything under three liters is actually a lot of things. It's wine bottles, beer bottles, soda bottles, tea. Catherine Skopik agrees. She is chair of Sierra Club's New York City group. Skopik says the importance of these bills is to stop the influx of plastic into our oceans. She estimates that 33 billion pounds of plastic enter the marine environment each year. The oceans that are so valuable to us for fish, for all kinds of things, uh, are being polluted. We have five garbage patches, the largest of which is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Halfway between Hawaii and California, it's twice the size of Texas, three times the size of France. These the plastics float, but then they eventually sink and break into little microparticles that the fish eat. Activist groups intend to continue pushing Senator Schumer with the National Bottle Bill. They say they've had a good relationship with him in talking on plastics. The bill was introduced by Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley and California Congressman Alan Lowenthal. But environmental activist groups want New York to also be a leader on this bill. Clark Adamitis, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Clark. And finally, Republicans in the New York State Senate today called on state officials to conduct a review of whether the changes to New York's bail laws are linked to the rise in violent crime over the last several weeks. Senate Minority Leader Robert Ort, in a letter to the Office of Court Administration, pointed to the sharp rise of shootings in New York City in 2020 compared to the previous year. New York ended bail requirements for nonviolent criminal charges in the state, though it's not clear what that has to do with violent crime increases. At the same time, shootings and violent and criminal acts have increased in other cities outside of New York as well. But police groups and local prosecutors, including law enforcement unions, have raised concerns with the impact of the changes. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, July 20th, 2021. The news was